The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month, the impact of the Supreme Court on the Americans with Disabilities Act. But let's begin ACB Reports for September 2007 by meeting Eric Bridges, the new Director of Advocacy and Government Affairs for the American Council of the Blind. Eric, welcome to your first of hopefully many appearances on ACB Reports. Tell us how you came to work for ACB. I graduated from uh, the University of Iowa and uh, came out here and took a job with the National Industries for the Blind. And for the last six years or so, I worked in various capacities with NIB of which probably the last three-plus years was spent doing public policy and consumer relations. I was involved with all aspects of the Javits-Wagner O'Day program, dealing with other disability groups, obviously very closely dealt with groups like ACB and AFB concerning a whole myriad of issues surrounding employment, Social Security and issues of that nature that would affect our employees at our affiliated organizations uh, across the country. And you Um, came to work for ACB when? I came to work for ACB in June of this year. I was doing a congressional fellowship on Capitol Hill with Congressman John Klein of Minnesota through the Brookings Institute. NIB had sponsored me in doing that. So I had been working for the congressman for about four months when ACB recruited me. So let's move then into the issues that you're working on that you want to talk about this month. Absolutely. We've got uh, a couple of interesting things that are taking place. Number one, uh, back in April, Congressman Pete Stark of California introduced a bill, H.R. 1931, which sought to make currency more accessible to people who are blind or are visually impaired. This specific bill which was named after a very prominent member of ACB out in California, Catherine Skyvers, is intended to create a broader discussion surrounding the topic of accessible currency. We've had some discussions with Congressman Stark's staff, and there is a uh, significant interest in holding a hearing this fall within the Financial Services Committee in the House to talk about the topic of accessible currency. We've been asked to play a role in whatever hearing takes place in terms of providing significant information to providing testimony, providing a witness for the hearing things of that nature. But no indication at this point when that hearing will be? No specific time, no, but okay. it's it's thought that in the fall uh, it would take place. This hasn't been introduced in either body, but the Workforce Investment Act, most of the listeners are concerned with Title Four of the Workforce Investment Act, which is the Rehabilitation Act, and that is being undertaken by the Senate and the House this year, it's looking like the Senate will be the first to introduce its version of the Rehab Act. And and there's some thought that the Senate will actually introduce the Rehab Act reauthorization separate from the Workforce Investment Act, simply because the Workforce Investment Act has some non-disability related issues that are extremely controversial and that uh, the Senate wants to try and get the Rehabilitation Act reauthorized without having it get entangled. Um, The last time that the Workforce Investment Act, which includes the Rehabilitation Act, was successfully authorized and signed was 1998. This is a bill that is to be reauthorized every five years. And in 2003, 
and years after, Congress was unsuccessful. The House has begun holding hearings on the broader Workforce Investment Act, and it's thought that they will be taking some sort of legislative action in terms of introducing a bill at some point after the Senate introduces the Rehab Act. But they will be introducing the broader bill that will also include the Rehab Act, so it'll be more comprehensive than what the Senate is introducing. But for the purposes of most of uh, our listeners, the Rehab Act is included in both bills. Now, there's been a lot of activity or a lot of talk of activity about something called the ADA Restoration Act. What is that and what's happening with it? Actually, last year, towards the end of the 109th Congress, uh, Congressman Steny Hoyer of Maryland and Congressman Jim Sensenbrenner of Wisconsin introduced the ADA Restoration Act, and it didn't go anywhere. This year, on the 17th anniversary of the signing of the ADA, it was uh, introduced again by Congressman Hoyer and Sensenbrenner. Uh, H.R. 3195 is the bill number. And uh, its companion legislation in the Senate was introduced by Senator Tom Harkin and Arlen Specter of Pennsylvania. The impetus for this legislation has dealt with the last several years some rather disturbing Supreme Court rulings and other rulings that bring into question the rights of people with disabilities to take action against their employers for being discriminated against. This bill kind of seeks to broaden back out the original intent of the ADA and the coverage for folks with disabilities that these congressmen and many disabled Americans around the country feel have been diminished by these rulings. The way that I've put it is, due to some of these rulings, an employee can be discriminated against, but may not be disabled enough to effectively be able to bring suit against their employer. And so what this could mean for someone who's low vision, for instance, is that they have been discriminated because they are thought to be of low vision, they will have a challenge in bringing a suit against their employer because they are able to use assistive technology or magnification or screen readers. And oftentimes, it'll be ruled that, well, because you are able to do that, you are no longer, quote-unquote, disabled. So there's a concern out there within the blindness community and for other reasons within the broader disability community, that this can't be allowed to happen. And uh, the ADA Restoration Act needs to be put into place to preserve the original intent of the ADA. Then the American Council of the Blind position is that the ADA Restoration Act needs to pass. We feel that it is appropriate to support it but that we will continue to be at the negotiating table to ensure that the needs of people who are blind are met as these bills continue to go through their various iterations, you know, through subcommittee and committee and markup and all of that. What are the odds of it passing this year when it apparently went nowhere last year? Last year, I believe it was done to, I don't want to say satisfy, but to get it out there. To get people thinking to get about people it. thinking about it, and then it was introduced this year with the intent that something would be done about it. There is thought that in the House the bill could move fairly quickly within the months of September and October, but who knows that same bill h r three one nine five has been referred to four different committees within the House, which means that theoretically each one of those committees could want to hold a hearing concerning the bill could want to do any number of things to it. 
In other words, if you didn't know your way around the hill already, you would by the time this thing gets to the floor. Probably. Uh, <laughs> although I do have to say, Mike, Congressman Hoyer is the chief sponsor, and he's the majority leader. You know, he's the second in command in the House and has the ability to move legislation with a fair amount of efficiency, assuming that there aren't any major issues that other members have with the legislation. That was Eric Bridges, Director of Advocacy and Government Affairs for the American Council of the Blind in Washington, D.C. From the American Council of the Blind, you're listening to ACB Reports. Since the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act 17 years ago, the United States Supreme Court has made several rulings which greatly impact this law. Dr. Otis Stevens is a law professor at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. He's also a nationally recognized scholar of the Supreme Court. During the 2007 convention of the American Council of the Blind in Minneapolis, Dr. Stevens gave this presentation on the subject of the Supreme Court and the Americans with Disabilities Act. We had a very interesting Supreme Court term just finished. Doesn't bode well, I'm afraid, for the ADA. The court, however, has handed down in the last uh, three years two rather important ADA decisions. One, of course, that you're familiar with is Tennessee versus Lane in 2004, in which the court held by a 5-4 vote that Title II of the Americans with Disabilities Act does, in fact, contain recognition of a fundamental right of access to courthouses, which means that uh, the Constitution of the United States supports that interpretation of Title II, and individuals now are legally guaranteed full access to direct participation in courtroom proceedings. And the implications of this decision go, of course, a good deal further than just courthouses that's now being worked out in the lower courts. Just last year, interestingly enough, the court in another Title II case said that the rights of individuals may be protected under Title II if the state actually violates a constitutional right of an individual. This particular case involved a prisoner who was not provided with the kind of conditions that he was entitled to in his jail cell. Uh, He was in a wheelchair. It was a matter of health, hygiene, and uh, he was not being given what he needed. The court recognized the state's behavior or failure to perform in this case is actually amounting to cruel and unusual punishment, which violates the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution. And Justice Scalia, of all people, recognized this right and upheld the claim of the prisoner. It was a rather unusual case, but it really represented almost an oblique expansion of the Lane decision. So in that respect, the court is, I think, on the right track for disability rights. But there have been other decisions in other areas that tend to move in the other direction. United States disability law is almost entirely statutory. That is, it is set forth in legislation, which in turn is elaborated on and implemented by administrative regulations that have the force of law. Statutes and regulations under our complicated legal system must ultimately conform 
to the requirements of the federal constitution. And of course, here's where federal judges, including the nine justices of the U.S. Supreme Court, enter the picture. Because the statutes and regulations are drawn up by human beings, and because these human beings are by no means perfect, the statutes are not always clear and consistent. For better or worse, under our system of government, the primary responsibility for interpreting, unscrambling, explaining the meaning of statutes and regulations falls primarily on judges. And this includes the ultimate power to determine whether a particular statutory or regulatory provision is being applied in accordance with provisions of the Constitution of the United States. With reference to disability law at both the national and state levels, constitutional requirements of equal protection and due process of law are most important. In recent years, the 11th Amendment, recognizing the principle of state sovereign immunity, has also become an important yardstick of constitutional interpretation. All this is highly abstract and legalistic, and I apologize for boring you with it, but it is essential to have a working knowledge and to remind ourselves at the same time regarding the theory underlying our legal system if we expect to make sense out of the ADA. I might mention under the 11th Amendment that the Supreme Court back in 2001 in an employment case under Title I of the ADA denied the right of a woman to bring a damage suit against the state of Alabama because, in the words of a five-member majority of the court, Congress had not properly abrogated or abolished state sovereign immunity. So the state claimed sovereign immunity in that case and won. The Lane case that came down three years later under Title II of the ADA went the other way simply because Sandra Day O'Connor changed her vote. Sandra Day O'Connor is no longer there. Her replacement is Samuel Alito, who aligned himself closely this year with the most conservative wing of the Supreme Court. However, I understand from personal comments from a few people who know Alito that he does have some concern about disability rights. I will find out fairly soon, I think, just how deep that concern is. Now, it's important to place the ADA in historical perspective, so I'm going to drop back in time just for a couple of minutes here. Since the late 1960s, disability law and policy has attracted the widespread attention of policymakers, academics, courts, researchers, employers, and advocates. Courses on disability law are proliferating in the law schools around the country. In fact, I'm going to be teaching one of those courses this fall. And believe me, that is a daunting task. Professor Peter Blank, whose textbook I'm going to be using this fall, he noted recently that the ADA has become America's national policy statement affecting the lives of persons with disabilities. That's pretty sweeping endorsement of, of the importance of this law. Since the mid-1970s, the disability movement has shifted substantially from a medical model to what can perhaps best be designated as a civil rights model, but not completely. The shift is by no means complete. Remarkably, even today, employment, health care, 
governmental services, rehabilitation programs for people with disabilities are still modeled to a large extent on outmoded, medicalized stereotypes about disabilities. These views date back at least as far as the American Civil War, with the birth of a military pension system that linked the definition of disability to an inability or perceived inability to work and recognized medical doctors as the gatekeepers of disability benefits. A lot of research has been done on this subject. It has shown, not surprisingly, how politics influenced the allocation of federal pension benefits even after the Civil War for disabled Union veterans, those who had fought in the Battle of Gettysburg, for example, were much more likely to get pension benefits than similarly situated veterans of less celebrated military engagements, shall we say, battles that perhaps the Confederacy might have won. Who knows? In any event, it's interesting that the Gettysburg veterans got preferred treatment under the old pension system. The medical model was uh, really designed to address the needs, as distinguished from the rights, of people with disabilities. This led to government policies that viewed assistance to people with disabilities as a form of charity or welfare. As an example, as late as the early 1940s, the Georgia Academy for the Blind, the public residential school for blind students in my home state of Georgia was administered under the supervision of the state welfare department, not the state board of education. And Georgia wasn't the only state in that situation back in the early 40s. Little, if any, consideration was given at that time by those in authority at both the state and national levels to discrimination in education, employment, transportation, communication, and other areas as a form of civil rights violation against people with disabilities. All this came out of a gradual shift from the medical model because we were giving some attention by the post-World War I period, we were giving some attention to employment of people with disabilities, including the Randolph-Shepard Act, of course, which passed in 1936 and was a premier example of the federal government's commitment to employment of people, blind people specifically, with disabilities. But that movement was slow in coming. But the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s changed all of that. People with disabilities began to see themselves as excluded, disadvantaged minorities of individuals, much like African Americans and much like women, who although they're not a minority by any means, certainly were and in some cases still are disadvantaged in our system. So the disability rights movement got underway, influenced heavily by the civil rights movement involving African Americans, involving racial and ethnic minorities, and involving women. Problem was, one problem at least, for racial discrimination and gender discrimination, a higher standard was developed by the Supreme Court in examining alleged instances of discrimination. Any racial classification would be upheld, the court said, only if it advanced a compelling governmental interest and it would be subject to very strict scrutiny. 
the strict scrutiny, compelling governmental interest test. For gender discrimination, the words were a little softer. It was not strict scrutiny. It was heightened scrutiny. And it was not actually compelling interest, but important interest. Now, these are not precise terms. Judges don't often deal in precise terms when they're interpreting the equal protection due process clauses. But that's what happened for race discrimination and gender discrimination. For disability discrimination, however, the court dropped back to the lowest standard of acceptability, which it applies to economic regulation, uh, to regulation based on age. Governmental regulations of that kind are subject to what the court calls rational basis analysis. In other words, if it's halfway reasonable, the court will uphold it. And the burden of proof rests on the individual who is challenging the statute or regulation rather than the other way around, which is what's done if you're dealing with racial discrimination or gender discrimination. So right off the bat, disability discrimination is determined in court on the basis of a rational basis test, and that makes it a little harder. As you know, the Americans with Disabilities Act draws heavily on the language of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 and its accompanying regulations. Now, this law, this 1973 Act, was actually intended initially primarily as a rehabilitation measure. But at the last minute, they put in a little section called 504. That is the section, by the way, still very much alive, still very important. In fact, the district court in Washington, D.C. relied on Section 504 in recognizing our right to uh, accessible, identifiable currency. Did not rely on the ADA. So this statute is still with us and is still very important. I'd hope to bore you with a few cases here this morning. I won't be able to do much of that. Let me tell you about one, though, that really fascinates me. And this is not a Supreme Court case. This is an 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. The 11th Circuit includes the states of, I believe, uh, Georgia, Alabama, and Florida. This is the Littleton case. Littleton versus Walmart stores. Littleton is a mentally retarded individual. He claimed job discrimination. He claimed that there is at least a genuine issue of material fact in his case, tending to show that his mental retardation substantially limited him as to certain major life activities in violation of Title I of the ADA. Regarding the major life activities of learning, thinking, communicating, and social interaction, that's what he was talking about. But he somehow couldn't convince this panel of the circuit court that those limitations amounted to a disability. So what the court wound up saying is that this certified, mentally retarded individual does not meet the standard of disability under the ADA, and therefore summary judgment in favor of Walmart was okay. That drew a tremendous amount of criticism from the uh, community of scholars that I emailed with. They were sending around emails calling it the worst ADA decision yet. The court winds up saying, it is unclear whether thinking, communicating, and social interaction are major life activities. <laughs> we acknowledge that a review of Littleton's deposition, he apparently tried to, tried to do an interview by himself with Walmart, and he just fell apart. And the court says in this rather pompous way, we acknowledge that a review of Littleton's deposition testimony 
is not inconsistent with his assertion that he sometimes has difficulty thinking or communicating. (laughs) But even if thinking and communicating are major life activities, Littleton has not shown that he is substantially limited in those activities. He might think slow, but he can think, you know. As Walmart contends, moreover, the fact that Littleton drives a car (laughs) might be determined to be inconsistent with his assertion that his abilities to think and learn are substantially limited. You see the difficulty here. Major life activity, that's the definition that the law puts forward. Here's a court in Alabama that says that doesn't really amount to a disability. That's just one example. At first glance, the answer to the question, what is a disability, might seem simple, straightforward, an inability to see, to hear, to walk, so on. But in a legal context, the reason for the question may shape the answer. Is the question asked for the purpose of forming a legislative response to high unemployment rates among, for example, injured veterans? Is it asked to provide an answer to parents who want to be able to send their children who use wheelchairs to neighborhood schools? Is it asked to explain why people with limited hearing or eyesight don't have full access to movies? Any one of these and many other perspectives affecting the lives of people with disabilities may shape the answer to the simple question, what is a disability? This helps to explain why the ADA definition of disability is so broad and far-reaching. Wouldn't it be better, many people ask, to narrow the definition, focus it more specifically on what might be perceived as more obvious and serious disabilities, leaving out, notably, those of people other than ourselves? Well, that might sound good at first, but when you think about what it takes to get a law passed by Congress or by a single state legislature, you begin to understand the problem. It is necessary almost always to accommodate many competing interests and to form coalitions consisting of a wide array of organized groups and individuals to accomplish anything by way of legislation. One word about the Supreme Court decision on desegregation that came down last Thursday. The Supreme Court basically threw out two voluntary racial desegregation plans, one in Louisville, Kentucky, one in Seattle, Washington. 5-4 vote. Justice Kennedy, in a concurring opinion, left a slight bit of room open to consider race in some context, but very, very limited. Otherwise, this decision is very, very unforgiving when it comes to any kind of racial distinction. You carry that over to the disability field, you can see the implications. That's something to watch. Finally, in closing, what do we do if Congress decides to reopen the ADA? What should we change? It may be too much to ask. You may not agree with me, but I frankly think Congress should consider dropping the very term disability from the language of the statute. Even under the expanded rights-oriented definition, now on the books, the term disability still carries a negative connotation. It suggests something less than equality. It still carries a stigma, believe it or not. Why not use a term that is less negative in tone? Maybe a term like differences. 
something as simple as that, rather than disabilities. Somehow disability just doesn't convey a neutral idea. There are, of course, differences, physical, mental, psychological, that the law can take into account without labeling them disabilities. It's something to think about. And it will take a lot of time and effort to come up with a better alternative than the one now in place that is the disability civil rights model. But frankly, if we can't improve the law substantially, I suggest that we leave it alone. In this climate, which is not favorable to disability rights, a change might make it worse. Thank you very much. Nice to be with you. That was Otis Stevens of Knoxville, Tennessee. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports. Connecting the blind community around the world, this is ACB Radio.